0: We're in Ruth chapter 2 this morning, if you'll go ahead and open there in your Bibles, Ruth chapter 2, as we continue our series through this, this wonderful book about what God is doing in the midst of ordinary situations, the lives of His people. I'm going to begin, though, on a different note, thinking about the term, Ameri- the American Dream. You, you've heard that term, but you may think different things about what the American Dream is, The American historian James Trudlow Adams first coined that term, the American dream, in 1931 in a book he wrote called The Epic America. In his use of the term, he seemed to locate the core of what the American dream is, not in riches or wealth, but in human potential, in human potential. In other words, for Adams, the American dream is about the potential every person can reach In America, because barriers of class, of social uh, hierarchy, of ancestry, have supposedly been removed in America so that anybody can achieve anything they want to. With enough hard work and determination, according to the American dream, you can pursue and find success here. So Adams writes, that the American dream is that dream of a land in which life should be better and richer and fuller for every man with opportunity for each according to ability or achievement. And he clarifies, it is not a dream of motor cars, this is written in 1931, of motor cars and high wages merely, so it is connected to it, but a dream of social order in which each man and each woman shall be able to attain to the fullest stature of which they are innately capable and be recognized by others for what they are, regardless of the fortuitous circumstances of birth or position. Over time, though, don't you think, in some ways, the American dream, this term, has been changed. It's in some ways devolved into more about being simply about material goods, possessions, things we can gain. Home ownership is seen by some as one of the pinnacles of now you know you've arrived because you own your own home. It turns out, in some ways, that sort of view is what led to the housing bubble that burst, as we well know. Maybe for others... Reaching the American dream means owning your own business. And no doubt, a big part of the American dream is reaching that promised land flowing with milk and honey, which is called retirement, right? What well, we could consider the, m- maybe some Americans consider the appetizer for heaven, right? This is the good stuff before we really attain to heaven. Or do you struggle with feeling like you want to chase the american dream do you struggle with wanting more possessions and more things well i want to admit to you that i do i have a problem here you know it's so easy for us to fall into the temptation to think if i could just earn five hundred dollars more a month then things would be good i'd be settled i'm not asking for a raise here by the way Or if we could, you know, what is it for you? What is it that that if you could locate this one thing that would make it all better as far as having your needs, meeting the American dream, coming to this place where you feel secure and safe and well taken care of, happy and successful, what would it be? I mean, retirement is really appealing, isn't it? People who retire early at 55, 50, 55, like, wow, that would be so wonderful. Think about all the, the things we could do if I had plenty of money and I could just do whatever I wanted to day in, day out. Well, we know retirement ultimately is not like that, is it? But what if there is more to life than these dreams, these American dreams? What if all the things we work so hard for in physical comfort, in security and provision are distractions from something really that is bigger and better? more lasting, more satisfying than we could ever imagine. Are you satisfied with merely pursuing the American dream? Are you satisfied with living a life of comfort and ease and then riding out into the sunset of retirement? Our text for this morning will help us think about some of these questions. We see in this chapter the Lord's providence. We see the Lord's faithfulness. We see the kindness of God's people. But more than that, we will come to see that there's more to life than mere physical nourishment and security. What we need, brothers and sisters, friends, is a lasting home. What we need, brothers and sisters, is a people, a family. What we need is a God who will accept us into his kingdom forever. And these promises, these things, make all these other dreams just fade in their significance before us. Look at our passage with me. Ruth 1, Ruth 2, 1 through 23. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, And eat some bread, and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she arose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean. And do not rebuke her. The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, Her daughter in law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother in law. Dear Father, please take your word and apply it to our hearts this morning. Please take my voice and the words that I speak, my somewhat weak and limited attempts at communicating your word. And we pray that you would turn it into the preaching of your word. Take it by your Holy Spirit and move among your people for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Naomi and Ruth, from chapter 1 we know, had taken a tour in Moab for about 10 years and things had not gone well for them. We have to wonder if Elimelech left the land of promise in unbelief. When the famine came, would things have turned out different, differently had they stayed in the land of Judah and trusted in God to provide for them in the midst of famine? Was their suffering, Elimelech's death, his son's death, were they from the sin of unbelief? We left off last week wondering, will something be in, better in store for them Here in this new land, coming back to Bethlehem of Judea, will Naomi continue in her bitterness and her emptiness? Or would she find comfort in being back home? And what about Ruth, the Moabite, the foreigner? Would she, a foreigner, find acceptance among God's people in this land? Well, chapter 2 begins with the author informing us that Naomi knew of a relative of her husband. He was in the same clan as Elimelech, He was of the tribe of Judah. And the author describes him as a mighty man in substance of character. The words there are are interesting, the way he's described. He's described as a warrior of character, as a warrior of worthiness. So in the darkness of this culture, remember in the time of the judges, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Well, in the midst of this dark culture, here shines a bright light of character and worthiness, of truth and honor. But we also see this in Ruth. She is a a woman of initiative and industry. She insists on going into the fields in hopes of finding someone who would show her favor. So she places herself in the role of servant, looking for someone, anyone who will have mercy on her and will allow her to glean behind the harvesters. This means she'd pick up the leftovers after they were done. Maybe Ruth knew this provision of Israel from her deceased husband, maybe from her mother-in-law. She had learned it somewhere, probably. Deuteronomy 24, 19 says, When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back and get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the works of your hands. And do you know why he made this provision? Why God gave this provision to the Israelites? He says... It's because you shall not pervert justice for the foreigner, fatherless, or widow, for you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. In other words, they should show mercy in these ways because the only reason for their own existence was the mercy of God. As they came out of Egypt as slaves and they sojourned among the land, God provided for them. So, Just kind of as a side point. Consider then, how ought we to treat those who are oppressed around us? The immigrant, the orphan, the widow, the abused, the homeless. How ought we to care for those who are most likely to be taken advantage of? Because this is a a characteristic of God's people. This This is how they treat those who are shunned and oppressed by the world around us. We are to shine as bright lights to the culture around us, caring for those who are in need. Well, Ruth, the Moabite, heads off into a strange land, susceptible to abuse, and the author tells us, as Lindsay pointed out, that she just happened to come to a part of the land belonging to Boaz, the relative of Elimelech, a man of mighty character. Now, the author isn't just giving us the point of view from Ruth, that she didn't know where she was going, she just happened upon this particular field. He's also shouting something to us, the readers, right? This is a neon sign in the text for us to notice that the author is saying, this is not by accident. She didn't just happen to arrive here in this field. The Lord is behind and underneath and all around this. He is active in this world in the midst of the mundane. In the midst of things that we see as chance, the Lord is at work. Ruth was going about her day looking for food. Boaz was checking in on his fields, but the Lord was behind it all, working in the midst of the ordinary. Ordering the steps of ordinary people, working to fulfill his promises and to establish his kingdom. That's what God was doing in the midst of this ordinary event. Have you had divine appointments like that sometimes? We're looking back on a certain situation, you realize that wasn't just chance, right? God was at work in that. I remember years ago, one of the, the saddest and darkest times for R- Rachel and me, my wife and I, as we suffered a failed adoption. Uh, it, was, it was one of the worst things I've been through. Uh, we were broken hearted and we, we felt maybe in some ways like uh, Naomi, we felt empty and bitter. It was about that time that we also took a call. I took a call as associate pastor uh, at Red Oak Baptist Church. It was my first uh, kind of pastoral role and the Lord called us to Red Oak. We lived in Nashville, North Carolina. And we didn't know what was going on at the time, but we just happened to meet a member at Red Oak Baptist Church who just happened to be a counselor at an adoption agency, uh, Christian Adoption Services. We weren't working with them, but she, she said to us, we know you're not working with us. We you don't have the paperwork done for us. But, you know, if, if we have uh, so, a, a baby that, who needs a home, would you be willing to, to work with us? And welcome a baby into your home? And of course we were like, absolutely, yes. And you know, looking back on my time at Red Oak, we can see some ways. Maybe it wasn't you know my best decision in going there and taking our family there and, and doing things like that, but it was through Christian adoption services that we adopted Isaiah and Jana. They called us one Monday and said, there's this baby boy who needs a home. Could you come on Wednesday and pick, Pick him up and take him home, and I remember holding him in my hands. He was about this big. Now he's going to be much taller than me pretty soon. But it was only through looking back on those circumstances that we were able to able to see that these ordinary meetings, this ordinary just taking a call to Red Oak Baptist Church, and we happened to meet this girl named Jennifer who worked. Looking back on these things, we could see God was providentially at work to bless us. But it, it did take something else. So you know I believe in the sovereignty of God, that God is absolutely sovereign over all things. But somehow, mysteriously, it also works with the choices that we make, right? And so w- what it took in that case was Jennifer seeking to bless us. Her actively thinking, how, how can I serve this family? In, in our text, it took Boaz being a man of character, seeking to show someone favor. This changes how you view daily life, doesn't it? If you know God's actually in control, that he's working in his providence to to build his kingdom, that the ordinary events of your life aren't just necessarily ordinary events, but God might have something big in store. Doesn't that change how you view, how you go about life? It fills us with, it should fill us with anticipation of what the Lord might do today. So for Ruth, she was asking, who will I meet today that will show me favor? It seems like even there was some expectation there. Somebody's going to show me favor. And for Boaz, he went to the fields. He was eager to display the loving kindness of the Lord. To show favor on someone. So you might ask the question, what kind of meeting might God arrange today? in which i can show favor to someone what is the lord up to today what's the lord doing in these things how might he work through me for his glory and you may not recognize it until years later as you look back on a certain event that seemed so ordinary but the lord unfolded it in marvelous ways i wonder what coincidental meetings you might have this week How the Lord might use those to fulfill His promises to His people. Ruth doesn't just happen to go into his fields. Boaz just happens to arrive while she's there and the author welcomes us to meet Boaz. The the words there are, look, here he is now. Look, Boaz coming to his fields. He blesses his workers by the Lord and they bless him back. Apparently he's a... uh, unashamed Christian businessman blessing his workers and they bless him back boaz asks the young man in charge of the harvest whose young woman is this ladies would you like to be referred to in that way (laughs) whose woman is that but he's asking in the culture of their day whose husband is this or whose daughter is she who's responsible for her care who is she related to the young man answers and we get his perspective and probably that of the other workers. She's just a Moabite woman. She's just a young, foreign Moabite woman associated with Naomi. She came and asked that means she might glean and gather among the sheaves. And she's been here all day. Well, how then will Boaz treat this young Moabite woman, this foreigner, with no husband and no father? She's a foreigner with no protection, no recourse. She's susceptible to being taken advantage of. And she has presented herself in the fields of Boaz, the man of great character. How will he respond? Well, his first command seems like it could go either way. (laughs) Don't glean in another field, but stay here. Stay here in this field, gleaning here. Stay close to my women, he says. Go after them and glean after them. But then he assures her that he has put the young men on notice to not mess with her. When she's thirsty, she can come and drink with what the young men have drawn. And in all of this, Boaz goes above and beyond his responsibilities to Ruth, raising her up from the status of a servant. He speaks to her tenderly as a father. And Ruth can't contain her emotion. She bows down before him, almost in an act of worship. She can't believe she has found favor in his eyes. This is what she's been searching for. Remember, she said to her mother-in-law, let me go out and glean so that I can see who might show me favor. This is what she's been searching for. Favor, grace, unmerited kindness. And now she's received it. It's repeated here in verse 10 as well as verse 13. How have I found favor in your eyes? Although the young man and in the, in the workers in the field may have seen her merely as a Moabite woman, Boaz knows more. He's heard all about her loving kindness to her mother-in-law since the death of her husband. He's heard how she left her father and mother her own land. She's left everything that she had, everything she knew, and committed herself to Naomi, committed herself to Naomi's God, Yahweh, and the people of her God. She has come to take refuge under the wings of the Lord, the God of Israel. So Boaz, the man of character, knows that Ruth is a woman of character. He calls down a blessing on her and a reward of the Lord for her kindness. I'm sure she felt like she'd been rewarded already. But there's even more. Look at what the Scripture says. At mealtime, Boaz welcomed her to join him and all the others. Can you imagine that? A Moabite given a seat at the table with the Israelite workers and Boaz himself? I remember in high school, I switched school and I wanted to be a part of the, the popular crowd. So I went and just walked over and sat with, at the popular table at lunchtime. And at first they were like, what, what are you doing here? Right? I was someone from outside of their circle. How much more than a Moabite in Israel? Moabites were is enemies of Israelites. And Boaz welcomes her to the table. The owner of the field, she sits beside them and eats with them. Bread and wine and roasted grain she ate till her stomach was full and then she had leftovers. She got up to glean some more and then Boaz lavishes even more favor on her. Let her glean even among the sheaves. Pull out some for her, oops, dropping it on the ground so she can scoop it up and collect even more. Do not rebuke her. And this, friends, is the nature of God's grace to sinners like us. Boaz's favor toward Ruth is a reflection of God's favor towards his people who are in Christ. Are you a Christian? Are you in Christ? Have you clung to Christ in faith for him to save you? Well, then recognize his grace to you. You didn't... He doesn't owe you His mercy or kindness. You were far from God, estranged from God's people. You are at home and at peace in this sinful world, right? But God demonstrates His love for sinners in sending His own Son as a sacrifice for our sins. By Jesus' perfect life, He earned for His people a right standing before God. And by his death, he paid the penalty we should have paid. And now all who come to find refuge under his wings receive his favor. This unmerited kindness of God. You once went after your own idols, but now you yearn for the Lord, the God of Israel. You once were foreigners, but now you are God's people. You once were servants relegated to the edge of God's field, But in Christ, he welcomes you to the the family table. In Christ, you have received grace upon grace. The favor of God lavished upon you. We are his sons and daughters. Ruth had gone into the fields hoping to find favor in someone's eyes, and she received so much more than she could have hoped for. Blessing and comfort, kindness, security, blessings of provision, Now she would go back home and tell Naomi all that had happened. The author notes uh, a couple of times that Ruth was satisfied. She had plenty uh, to eat, and then she had plenty left over for Naomi. And then come the questions. I can almost hear Naomi's motherly tone inquiring about her day, right? What did you do today? Where have you been? What have you been doing all day? She assumes that some man took notice of her. And now we've... Known all along who it is, but Naomi has been at home wondering what's been going on. And when Ruth reveals the name of the man she worked with, it puts an end to Naomi's bitterness and emptiness. Did you notice that? She, she has a change in her own heart. Hope is revived. Naomi blesses him by the Lord. She praises God for his kindness. That word again, steadfast love. Loving Kindness. God has not forsaken the living or the dead. Who exactly Naomi is talking about is left a little ambiguous here. We don't know if she's referring to the steadfast love of Boaz or the steadfast love of the Lord. But I think it's probably intentional. Boaz is displaying the steadfast love which reflects the steadfast love of the Lord. Or we could say Boaz is is an instrument of God to display his steadfast love to Ruth and Naomi. But look at this. What does it mean that his loving kindness hasn't forsaken forsaken the living or the dead? We'd assume that the living are Naomi and Ruth, right? But in what way is God showing steadfast love to the dead through this? Some have seen it as referring to the past, how maybe Boaz had showed steadfast love to Naomi's husband how he had treated him but I think it's better to see it as a ray of hope glimmering in Naomi's mind look what else she says in verse 20 the man is a close relative of ours one of our redeemers what does that mean maybe you've heard the term kinsman redeemer a redeemer in this story refers to a close relative who had certain privileges and responsibilities to his family members so in this story The kinsman redeemer has the privilege of buying the deceased relative's land and the responsibility, it seems, to marry his widow in order to continue the family line. So it might sound a little odd to us, but this was actually a way of providing for a widow and providing an heir to the deceased husband. That was very important, to have an heir in your family, to continue the line. So could Boaz be the one to turn things around for this family? Could he be the one, maybe he could marry Ruth and start a family which would extend the line of her husband, the Limelech. But think about the problems involved too. Boaz, she says, is a close relative of ours. One of our close relatives. But he's not the only. And how do we know he's the closest relative who would have these privileges and responsibilities? They found in Boaz the very picture of a worthy man. What if there's a closer redeemer who is a jerk, who does not display this loving kindness of the Lord? But there's another problem, right? Ruth is not even an Israelite. She's a Moabite. And in Deuteronomy 23, verse 3, we read, that no Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord. You'll remember the promise to Abraham years ago that his descendants would be like the stars of the sky. Look up at the sky, Abraham. This is what your descendants will be like. But Naomi has been left a widow and childless. And all she has left is this daughter-in-law from Moab. And even if Boaz marries Ruth and they have children, do offspring from an Israelite and a Moabite count as a fulfillment to the promise to Abraham? Do they count as one of the stars, the descendants of Abraham? Chapter 2 closes with a glimmer of hope. But it's the kind of hope you have to squint really hard to see. But, Maybe all is well just the way it is. At the end of this chapter, we see that Ruth is content to glean in the fields with Boaz's women, and she remained living with her mother-in-law. Maybe we could cut the story off right here at the end of chapter 2. They lived happily ever after. They had plenty to eat. They had security from Boaz. They had comfort. But they both remained childless widows. Now, there are so many unanswered questions for this little family of Naomi and Ruth. Think about it on a grander scale as well. There There were so many unanswered questions for the larger family of God, the people of Israel. What about those promises to Abraham? Is this just some story, just some random story, some event that took place thousands of years ago that gives us happiness, that makes us feel good, that they were so loving and kind to one another? What about the promises to Abraham? Not only was he promised numerous offspring, but one that would bring blessing to all the nations. And speaking of offspring, what about the promise years even before that to Adam and Eve about the offspring who had crushed the head of the serpent? The serpent still slithering around, working his ways. If anything, it seemed like maybe the serpent was winning in the time of the judges, where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There was no king in Israel, but maybe you remember that God had promised one in Genesis 49. Jacob calls his sons together and prophesies to them, and he says to Judah, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he who comes to whom it belongs. In other words, a king will reign from the tribe of Judah until the hand, he hands the, off the scepter to the one true king, the Messiah. And we're reminded in chapter 1 of that this promise is related to our story, for Elimelech was a man of Bethlehem in Judea, and Boaz is of Judah as well. But at this time, all these promises are left unfulfilled. God's people are waiting for an offspring to crush the head of the serpent. They're waiting for a king in Israel They're waiting for a Messiah to come to make all things right. But what does this have to do with this little family who has returned to Moab? Could these promises have anything to do with a young Moabite woman who has declared her commitment to Yahweh? Well, in this chapter, we're also confronted with questions of our own. Like Ruth, like Naomi, we may often find ourselves completely satisfied with the comfort, security, and blessings of this life in America. What if you could choose between an easy life of pursuing the American dream or a hard life of pursuing Christ? Which would you choose? Or parents, what dreams do you have for your kids? What dreams do you have for your grandkids? Don't you want to see them grow up and be successful and happy and have a good marriage and a good job and have plenty of money to do what they want with, to never have any need? Do you have dreams of holiness for your children and grandchildren? Do you have dreams that they would pursue Christ with all they've got? Children, what are your dreams? Is your dream just to be successful and Be famous and popular with others? Well, by this sermon, I'm pleading with you not to settle for the American dream when you have much greater promises in God's Word. When you have much better promises in Christ. In Christ, God has promised a home with Him in heaven, with a spiritual family, with peace forever, no sorrow, no pain, no death or disease. Well, which dream do you want to pursue? The American dream or the heavenly dream. Seek first the kingdom of God, Christ says. And his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. I guess I have a choice to make when I am tempted in pursuing more money or a great retirement or more possessions, more things If I'm pursuing the American dream, I'll choose just what promotes my well-being. I'll only do hard things if they benefit me now or in the future. My relationships with my neighbors, with my friends, with my church family will mainly be trivial. I probably won't take many risks for the sake of Christ or do things that might be a little too awkward for His sake. But if I choose to pursue the kingdom of God, things will be different. I might take risks here and there for being a witness for Christ. I might begin seeing coincidences as divine appointments for the sake of Christ's kingdom. What kingdom are you pursuing? What promises are you clinging to? Are you settling? Or are you holding out for greater promises? Will you believe that the promises God has for you are better than the promises that this world makes. Let's pray together.